Oh, the weather outside is sunny. And my co-host sure is punny. And we've got nowhere else to go. Let it snow, let it snow. Wait, 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 wait. This is completely stupid. Dude, I thought you said you wanted to get something more, you know, into the seasonal thing. No, I said the Christmas turkey needs more seasoning. It is kind of dry, unlike most of our jokes. True. And it's time to dive right in as the water is wet and blue. Blu-ray, that is. (laughs) Uh, Beer. on the shelves and Rudolph's with your shoes off. Welcome to another Holly Jolly episode of Digital Noise right here on oneofus.net. This is the Blu-ray and DVD review podcast that has never, ever been on anyone's nice list. Not even one person? Not even one person, I don't think. Not even Nicolas Cage? Maybe Nicolas Cage. We might be on Nicolas Cage's nice list. I have a feeling like his ideas of naughty and nice might be a little skewed. Like his views of most things, in fact. <laughs> Anywho, I am your host, Brian Salisbury, Santa's Most Wanted, and I am joined by Frosty the co-host, Christopher Lawrence Cox. Hey, it's really great to be here. I just flew in from the North Pole, and boy, are my wings frozen over. Yes, no, this is good. We should take this on the road. We're clearly <laughs> ready for vaudeville. We, yeah, we've completely got like a Lewis and Martin thing going on. Here. Now that vaudeville's been dead for a hundred years, we have mastered it. Let's go, Chris. <laughs> Everything else is coming back. Why not that? <laughs> you know, I hear this whole horseless carriage thing is like just getting started. It's pretty interesting. I've been wondering why you've been stockpiling whale oil, and now I think I have the answer. <laughs> Actually, it's just because I really like killing whales and draining their their vital fluids. Hmm. Very nice. Yeah. So anyway, Digital Noise, like all of our content on oneofus.net, is available on iTunes. Just search One of Us in the podcast section. You can also follow this show on Twitter, at DigiNoiseCast. I want to remind you that oneofus.net right now is running its All I Want for Geekmas series, which is our holiday gift guide, sort of compiling all the best things that we have covered over the last year uh, in various categories. Their most recent one is Documentaries and Blockbusters, or as I've called the episode, Docbusters. Hmm. So definitely go check that out. William Goss was on there and helped us review the best documentaries and the best major theatrical releases that were released on Blu-ray or DVD in 2013. Yeah, it's everybody else is putting out their best of, you know, films that came out in the theater list, which we very well at some point. We probably know. will uh, anyway. Probably a little, little bit late. But, uh, and and we're like, I mean, one of our big shows is this, Digital Noise. So we're like, you know what, at the very least, we have to make sure we tell people these are the Blu-rays and DVDs and box sets that we talked about all year, even back on our old show. <laughs> that, whatever that was called. Whatever that was, that you should be keeping your eye out for that you should consider buying for yourself with those Amazon gift cards or for your loved ones if, you know, they like such things. Yeah, absolutely. We have links out the wazoo on those posts, and if you click on any of them and get to Amazon, even if you don't buy that thing, as long as you got there from our link, anything you buy on Amazon, we get a cut of that, and we would greatly appreciate it. Yeah, clicking on any Amazon link anywhere on our site. Yes. uh, If you go through that link to buy whatever it is, I don't know, snake oil. uh, uh, Whale oil. Yeah. (laughs) Whatever it is. (laughs) A lot of oil on this show today. It's a little oily. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) It's too oily for this kind of humor. Yes, and also just posted is the audio from our epic blue Christmas cast last Friday. I don't recommend it. Was it Friday? I don't remember. Yeah. I was listening to it, like the end of it. I listened to like the last 10 minutes. I was like, holy 
Christ, I don't remember any of this. Yeah. And I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Don't remember it. Deck the inside of your ears with anarchy by uh, downloading that recording. Now, keep in mind, it's not always the best quality because it was just madness. It was. And the, the fact that there is any surviving audio from that event is downright miraculous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it really is. I mean, at, afterwards, uh, all they found was, you know, abandoned campsite and carved into a tree the word Croatoa. No yeah. one really knew what happened to everyone who was there. Well, we were trying to spell Coors Light, but somehow it came out Croatoa. I don't know. Anywho, yeah, that's uh, that's what we've got going on on the website, and we want to thank you guys for being listeners. We have a lot of newbies coming in right now, and we just want to say welcome. This is pretty much what you're getting, so I apologize. Yeah, I'm sh- it'll get better. <laughs> it gets better. It gets better. Anywho, uh, it's time to it's time to do something. I oh, I know what we're gonna do. We're gonna jingle your jangle by unwrapping. You've got mail. Yes, thank you, Torgo. The Letterbox. Uh, This is where we answer questions that were submitted by you, the listeners, on our Facebook page. And the first question comes from Jerry Gleason, who asks, Is there a great Christmas movie you could recommend that is often overlooked? Now, this is a good question because... I mean, we talk about the classics uh, in, in terms of what we consider classics, things that we watch every year, things like Die Hard, things like, you know, Lethal Weapon and movies that don't involve killing people as well for the <laughs> Christmas season. Uh, but there there are a few uh, Christmas movies that I feel like even if you've heard the title before, it may not be part of your regular Christmas rotation. And one of the things I really strongly suggest that you add to that rotation is the original Bishop's Wife. 1947, starring Cary Grant and David Niven and Loretta Young. This is a movie that, I I mean, if you've ever seen Cary Grant in a movie, you know how effortlessly charming this. This guy was George Clooney before George Clooney, just with the ability to be on screen and just eat up every second of it and just really have the camera love him and really just be effortlessly charming. And it's such a, a sweet, whimsical story about an angel that comes down to give guidance to a bishop and the bishop believes that the guidance is about, you know, well, essentially, you think the guidance at first is about trying to build this new cathedral, and really, it's a, it's about love. He's basically guiding him in the ways of love, and it takes place uh, at Christmas time. It's just a really sweet movie, and it's so much fun, and it, it is legitimately funny, even by today's standards. Yeah, I must admit, I have never actually seen that one, which I guess makes me a failure as a human being. At least that's what you were telling me earlier. Yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other things that you could point to and say Chris is a failure to being that, a human That are being, much but... more obvious, so this one is just like, a, okay, cementing it. Yeah, just kind of add this one on to the side. Well, I've actually got two, and I've mentioned these before on other podcasts, but I rarely see them on people's lists. And one of these is uh, the film Rare Exports, which is a really odd, what is it, Finnish or something like that? I believe it is Finnish, yes. A uh, film about, like... You know how the well the Krampus, quite yeah. frankly, that where there's Santa Claus, but then there's the Krampus, which is sort of the dark Santa Claus that takes all the bad children and punishes them. And it's about this small town where the Krampus is being released from a, a decades long slumber and is starting to come back by sending out all his various sort of like Santa Claus type minions out to kidnap children. Except while they look kind of like Santa Claus, they're also skinny and uh, naked. There's a lot of old man dong in this Christmas movie. There is. But the weird thing about this movie, which is ostensibly a horror, it's like 
a Spielberg type horror. It's like your kids are your protagonists. Yeah. They man they succeed despite themselves and, and despite the disbelief of parents and adults who seem to be rather relatively clueless all the time about what's actually going on. And it's actually quite charming. Yeah. I think when I wrote my review God, a couple of years ago now, I actually did draw a a reference to Amblin. So I, I agree with you totally. It does feel very Spielbergian. Now, the one for me that always connected the most is 1994's The Ref. And once again, a lot of people don't think of this one. It wasn't a gigantic hit when it initially came out, and a lot of people just missed it along the way. But it really hits home for me because if you ever if, – if you do Christmas with family where everybody's gathering, invariably there's going to be a point where things get really tense and maybe even escalate to a screaming match at some point. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of about like those families – and finding your way through that, but done in a hilarious comedy with Dennis Leary as a robber who, uh, after basically not getting away as clean as he thought, decides to hide out in a neighborhood house, which is run by uh, Kevin Spacey as the patriarch. And it's who is like desperately in hate with his wife <laughs> to say the least. Uh, and they, they're fighting. Oh, Judy Davis plays the wife and they're fighting so much that he ends up becoming the titular ref where like, he just wants everybody to shut the fuck up and be calm. And so he can wait this thing out and get out of here. But then he ends up getting sort of wrapped up into their, the whole situation and sort of negotiating their war they're having. So funny and actually kind of filled with like that Christmas spirit about forgiving and actually thinking about who it is in your life you care about and letting them know. Great, great Christmas movie. And the one that I watched a lot as a kid, I'm not sure. I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so I don't know if it holds up, but I'm just going to throw it out there. It's a 1991 film called All I Want for Christmas starring the the most youngest, most adorablest Thora Birch you will ever see uh, and her brother played by Ethan Embry. And essentially the story is that these two kids are trying to get their divorced parents back together for Christmas. And it's just sort of the links they go to in this grand design to try and, you know, force them back together. And Leslie Nielsen has an appearance as Santa Claus, which is always great. Um, And I remember, again, like I remember really loving this movie as a kid. But uh, I don't know. Revisit at your own risk, I guess (laughs) is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Okay, so that answers that question. That does indeed. And the next question, I always tend to do this. I'm not trying to do this, but it seems like on every show I pick someone's name who I am going to completely butcher. Uh, this question comes from Rick John Manalastus, who asks, any Christmas movies uh, make for a good eggnog drinking game? Um, I'm sure that, like, really, do you need an excuse to be drinking eggnog, really? No, no, no. But, you know, what's funny about this question is it does kind of segue into an announcement that, uh, we are going to be releasing, uh, we have a commentary in the works right now, just waiting for it to, to be uploaded to our, uh, our purchasable site, but it is a commentary for the movie Die Hard. Yup. Yes, and we're drinking. You might as well. And we did play an eggnog drinking game, which was that every time we saw... Bruce Willis's stunt double, anytime it was obvious that it was not Bruce Willis in a fight scene, we would take a, a swig of eggnog. So that actually made for a very enjoyable eggnog drinking game. Now, if you want to get a little drunker than that, I recommend watching the Polar Express. <laughs> and what you do is every time you get the complete creeps by how inhuman <laughs> one of these characters are, yeah. you take a drink. And the game is nice because it has a built-in stopping point so you don't get too drunk. When they start to look regular human you know you've had enough and you yeah. just stop the game. But by that point, you'll be drunk and passed out in the Uncanny Valley. True, so, true. There yeah. you have it. Well, thank you for that question and be on the lookout, guys, for that diehard commentary. It's still only going to be $1.99. 
And uh, we've got some some fun guests on there, and uh, I think you will have a good time. I think you'll have a better time than John McClane had, yeah, at well, the very least. Yeah, that's I, I think that's a given. Well, stuff in that letterbox back under the tree. We're going to move on to the reviews. And once again, we will have links for these, and you can click on them. And as long as you get to Amazon from that link, anything you buy uh, benefits the site. So thank you very much for doing that. And I feel like we would be remiss in our duties if we didn't start this week with Fast and Furious 6! Vroom, 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 vroom! Vroom, 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 vroom. That's what the cars say. Vroom, 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 vroom. vroom. He's literally sitting here with a little race car in his hand going back and forth on the rug. Vroom, vroom. I am waiting for the sequel where they go through the giant plastic loop-de-loop. I don't know who (laughs) I have to talk to, what script writer I need to contact. I think that's probably the rights to that are owned by Matchbox. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and they are making that Hot Wheels movie. Yeah, so. Oh, I'll just watch Speed Racer instead. Fast and the Furious 6, of course. Is there anyone out there? Just raise your hand if you don't know what Fast and the Furious is. Anybody? Anybody? I don't see any hands up. I don't see anything. Okay, so I don't need to tell you. It's about dudes racing cars. (laughs) Although, at this point in the series... It really isn't so much about dudes racing cars. No, it's more about people stealing things and stopping people from stealing things. Well, and... they've kind of found, like, okay, we've kind of wrapped up the... We've done as, as much as you can really do at this point with making the plot about street racing. And and they're not wrong, although I really love that aspect of the early films. I sure. Think it's a lot of fun, especially if you're sitting in a D-box seat. Yes, yes, that is true. <laughs> but, you know... They've, you know, there are even things you can read online where they've talked about, like, we need more story. We need to change the ways that, that we're writing these things. And, and five and six are really where this is first really starting to happen, where you can watch them going in a very different direction with these things. I know some people were really disappointed. I think that they've gotten even goofier and kind of better for, for. Well, they've begun to embrace the absurdity of not only the films themselves, but the fact that this franchise has lasted this long. Yeah. I no- think they are just trying to see how, how much further they can top themselves. In the lunacy department. And what's bizarre that even the critics liked it. This is like 70% uh, on Metacritic, which are on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, you're like, wow, that's for a Fast and the Furious number six. It's pretty impressive. It's kind of because you got to that point that either you're not showing up to review it at all or you're going because you totally know what or these you bought into are. It. You bought into it. And like as long as they're having fun, as long as they're like everybody seems to be like having fun on screen, as long as they – Every every time do something bigger and crazier than they did in the last one, it doesn't really matter if it defies the laws of physics completely, as yeah. long as it's fun. Yeah. And this is what this is. If you're one of those people who's going to go – like, I mean, I agree. I'll even watch a James Bond film and go at points like, all right, dude, you just pushed that too far. That was way past Especially my – Especially the later sus- Roger Moore's. Yeah, that's way past my ability to suspend my disbelief. And that's fair enough. It's That sort of thing is contextual. These films kind of the point is like, look, there's really no rules. I mean, if suddenly everyone had the ability to fly, which they kind of do in this film, <laughs> uh, you would really not be that surprised. You'd be like, no, okay, sure. Yeah, I just heard actually that Ang Lee is coming in to direct the next one, so it'll just be nothing but people just <laughs> leaping off the ground and running up the side of semis, and it'll it'll be incredible. And I think one of the best things that ever you know that has happened to this franchise, Crouching Toyota Hidden Dodge. Yes, <laughs> I think one of the best things that's happened to this franchise is the addition of The Rock or Dwayne Johnson, as I guess he prefers to be called. Now. Although I keep hearing things that sound like they're going to kill him in the next one. I don't think they can afford that now. Yeah. I mean, now that, unfortunately, Paul Walker has well, yeah, in real that, life died. If that was the case, yeah, yeah they're going to have to, like, I, I would not be surprised at this point if they have a thing where he suddenly realizes, I never wanted to be in the FBI. I always wanted to be a thief street racer. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Paul Walker did. But you have, you have Dwayne Johnson, you have Vin Diesel competing for who is really the leader of the, of the franchise really right now, because they're both so much fun to watch. So it's like two guys, 
who are neck and neck, despite the fact that neither one of them has a neck. Yeah, the street race is between these two, even though the series has definitely weighed heavily in following Vin Diesel, who at this point I've just come to fly. I just love that guy. I don't yeah. even care. Between this and, like, the, Riddick, I'm just like, you know what? I know your movies are goofy. I don't care. I love them to pieces and just keep making them. And he's one of us, you know, if we, if I can, you know, the name of the site in the podcast. He's a geek. He is. He's a total geek. He has the name of his freaking uh, D&D character tattooed on him. Yeah, yeah, which I'm like, all right, you win. You win. Man. Win, win. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't either. Um, but, you know, there is a lot of chemistry between the two of them, and I like the way that the ice that was there between them in the first movie is kind of cooling to where there's more of a grudging, like, respect between them now. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Walker... This is like, I mean, this is one of the last films you'll get to see him in. I think there's a movie called The uh, Just Hours coming it's, out. Yeah, I played it South by. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, that that should be coming out soon. That will, I think, be his last I movie. I think that's his last movie because mm. uh, unless they decide to keep the footage from Four Fast and the Furious 7, yeah, they're still not tricky. saying. Uh, you know, either way, that'll be a, a Blu-ray that'll totally be worth owning once it comes out, presuming Definitely. it'll be filled with deleted scenes. But uh, Paul Walker's actually a lot of fun in this one. They give him a really solid, like, go get, be put in jail, escape from jail, like, sequence. It's mm -hmm. a lot of, that, that works really well. And Michelle Rodriguez returns, sort of. Sort of-ish. She's returns-ish. Yeah. You know, because no one, they've, this now establishes the new rule that no one stays dead in the Fast and the Furious universe. Well, except for Paul Walker. Uh, well, that's true. But the, I heard they were in talks with his brother, and I don't know, maybe his, was it a twin brother? I don't know. We don't, I, Well, they'll go, like, actually, as, as desperate as that sounds, it also sounds like the exact kind of soap opera twist that this franchise would kind of embrace. Yeah. Like, it was his twin brother, you know what I mean? Uh, but in this film, uh, what I like about it is that they are really solidifying the unnecessary uh, narrative of the movie. They're, they're bringing the universe together. They are connecting dots that when this franchise first started, we never thought they would need to. Like, they're, they're finally bringing it around to like, you know how you uh, remember what happened in Tokyo Drift? And then remember how Han was just in the, in the fifth one and nobody really, well, they connect everything back and you realize yeah. the timeline. And You and realize that the last film in this series that's been released is Tokyo Drift. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so like in terms of like actual chronological time. And then introducing the new villain. Oh my God, I'm so excited for yeah, the new villain. the new villain is we're all. <gasps> I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it yet, but if you're a fan of these type of films, you'll go like, all right, that's cool. And I, and I really, I got I to gotta plug it one more time. My buddy Eric Davis, he wrote an article about how uh, the Fast and the Furious universe is the Marvel universe for dude bros <laughs> is absolutely 100% right. They've spent, they spent movies developing these characters individually and then they brought them all together and now they're just, they keep pushing it as far as it'll go. Uh, now, if you're, you know, looking at this like, well, what comes with it? Hey, man, this is the extended director's cut. It's one minute longer. <laughs> yeah, the, the difference between the extended cut and the regular cut, as happens with a lot of these movies, yeah. doesn't really amount it's to much. completely meaningless. But they do fill this up with a lot of, like, featurettes behind the scenes, taking a look at, like, how cool these cars are, hanging out with Vin Diesel, who's just goofing around on set and talking about that sort of thing. Um, uh, a look at – actually, one of the more interesting things is a look at the fight scenes, because this is one of the first films that, in the series that really actually tries to focus on 
you know, some hand to hand action sequences and they bring in fucking Gina Carano to, to fight Michelle Rod. Oh my God. I had such an action boner when I watched <laughs> Gina Carano and Michelle Rodriguez just duke it out. It was incredible. And there's a closer look at, at that and some of the other fight scenes. And I hope that they're going to continue to bring that up in the later films because that was actually a pretty well filmed fight scene. Yes, it was. And I would love if they're going to add new cast members, which apparently they just can't help themselves in the, with this series. Maybe they start looking at people like Tiger Chen, who's out there right now. Just, you know, guys out there in the ether who who are incredibly talented and maybe Americans don't really know them that well. Well, and also, I know I know he couldn't maybe be one of the guys out there running a gun, or maybe he could, but come on, you got to get Donnie Yen in there somewhere, or one of the guys, one of the other, like, this movie did actually have one of the guys from The Raid, so I was very, very happy to see did that it? happen. Uh, but I would like to see, I would like to see more of that. I would like to see them kind of, Joe Taslam actually from The Raid was in this as one of the henchmen, and I would like to see that continue as a trend but keep, keep looking at these sort of uh martial arts rising legends and established legends and put them in the films and even even above and beyond that in wesley snipes out of jail i mean i'm just saying villain for one of these films who ends up in a hand-to-hand fight with like you know vin diesel or somebody like that yeah I, he's actually an incredible fighter he really is he's, you know i've been saying this and saying this and saying this the one thing missing from the fast and the furious franchise vampires you know, you bring Blade into the series cross. Oh, man. All right. I have to go change my pants. <laughs> Vampire cars. Vampire. Okay. Vampire cars. Now that's just silly. Bro. No, no, no. It's going to be great. Just trust me. Just go with it. I think that idea sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but they have, you know, like like we said, like the extended edition versus the regular not that much different, but there are a lot of special features on this Blu-ray. Plus, this, you, you know, if you have a decent home theater setup, which I hope you do if you even have a Blu-ray player. because If, you, or, if you're even that, listening to this. Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, one of those titles that's going to sound incredible. It's going to look terrific. It's well worth owning on Blu-ray. Definitely. Oh, I just love this series so much. <laughs> as goofy and dumb as it is, it's awesomely, wonderfully it's goofy. It's so and good. Dumb. All right. Well, let's shift gears here a little bit and talk about Doctor Who, the day of the Doctor. I heard this was a thing that happened recently that people were excited about. That was a bit of a gear shifting there. <laughs> you call it a downshift. I call it an upshift. <laughs> or, which, actually, I think it's the other way around. I have upshift no, dude, well. my car's an automatic. I don't fucking know. I can't change my oil, so I can barely put gas in the thing. <laughs> the Day of the Doctor was a special episode of the show Doctor Who that marks the program's 50th anniversary, written by showrunner Stephen Moffat. Uh, it was shown on BBC One and everywhere else in the world, 94 countries simultaneously uh, on November 23rd. They they put these things out like right after their broadcast these days. I, don't know, I just thought that was kind of weird the BBC does that, but hey, yeah. I'm not complaining. Uh, it achieved the Guinness World Record for the largest ever simulcast of a TV drama. If I'm not mistaken, it actually... Like was like the the highest numbers ever of like a TV related thing. I can't remember the exact uh, exact thing it, it hit there, but it was a uh, it, it did fantastic. It also was fortunately pretty satisfying for both the fans and the critics. It seemed like I think they were calling it universal acclaim, <laughs> which isn't exactly true, but <laughs> nonetheless, just in terms of numbers, that's what it was showing. And what we're fe- dealing with. What they with- mean is that one person from Universal Studios was like, yeah, I really like that. <laughs> nice. I see what you did. <laughs> see that? Uh, so this is like, all right. So let me explain to you over the length of the years they've been doing Doctor Who once every however many years, 10 years or so. They decide to do a special episode like this that has that finds a plot excuse to make more than one of the actors who's played the Doctor be in the same episode and interact with each other. 
Um, now, this is the first one of those that actually isn't called The Blank Doctors. Mm-hmm. Well, there you <laughs> no. go. Uh, it's just Day of the Doctor. And here we get to see three Doctors, four if you incl- include the one of the special features here that they actually should have just plugged into the front of the movie. I'm not really clear why they released it separately as a special feature uh, that that has one more Doctor that, you know, if you're a longtime fan, is going to make your jaw drop that they're even in it. I guess even technically there's five doctors here now that I think about it. Anyway, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, before you watch this, go into the special features and watch mini features, uh, Night of the Doctor. Watch that first and then go in and watch the rest of this really superior and fun for the fans, as they keep saying, Doctor Who story that crosses David Tennant, who was the last doctor, and Matt Smith, who is the current doctor, into one crazy episode and also bringing in John Hurt as the doctor that we never knew about until just recently. The like, other doctor. Well, they call him the war doctor because as we fans know, not you, but fans. <laughs> uh, not you. There was a giant war between one of the major adversaries in this universe, the Daleks, who are one of the stupidest looking adversaries either, but we love them anyway. Uh, and the Gallifreyans, which is the race of time lords that the doctor belongs to, even though he rather reluctantly, because he pretty much thinks they're all a giant bag of dicks, hmm. which they tend to be most more often than not. Sure, sure. Uh, this time war, as we found out from the rebirth of the series from Christopher Eccleston on, just savaged the universe, destroyed planets, millions dead. Uh, and now there are no more, or at least at that point, there are no more Daleks. There are no more Gallifreyans. They're both, both races are wiped out. And, and Doctor Who is the last of the Gallifreyans living. This is kind of a retcon of all that, which you can do in a time travel series and introduces us to the fact that like there was a doctor we never saw played by John Hurt, who was the one who was the doctor who was involved in that war, who was like, I have to turn off all those other parts of myself that are like good and nice and always like believe in no killing no matter what and be willing to do the most horrible thing ever in order to stop more innocent people from being hurt on the outside. And it's the attempt of them to try and say, isn't there a different way this could have happened? It ends up being a lot of fun. A lot of this is uh, referential. I mean, hell, almost every scene in this has a subtext that refers to an earlier episode or something that happened. I mean, just the intro is the intro of the very first episode ever of Doctor Who. Like, I mean, it's just filled with this. And some of it you'll get and and some of it you won't get, but you won't even realize it was a reference in the first place, so it doesn't matter. The whole episode sort of has – it has the Daleks it has, and it has, more importantly, the Zygons who were – a great alien from – who've only previously been in a, a Tom Baker episode, Terror of the Zygons, who are shapeshifters. A lot of good and fun stuff in here. But the highlight is Tom uh, – uh, David Tennant and uh, Matt Smith working together, who are hysterical. These two should totally do a comedy movie together, or they should just rewrite it so now there are two Doctors existing side by side and Doctor Who – call it Doctor Who's – Doctor Who's <laughs> one of them's a Time Lord. The other one is also a, a time, time Lord. lord. <laughs> Together they lord over time and argue about. You wouldn't anything. think the two of them could fit in one police box, but it turns out it's bigger on the inside. Yeah, that's what she said. That's Actually, really. I don't know what that would mean. <laughs> Uh, but this comes with, as well, extra features of, like I said, the mini-episode Night of the Doctor, which is so awesome, and a less important one called The Last Day. There's a 14-minute behind-the-scenes type look, and there's uh, the real thing to get this for is 47 minutes Doctor Who Explained, which is an overlook at the entire history of Doctor Who, like a short documentary. That's This makes this actually a great little starter for some ways for somebody who might be interested in getting into Doctor Who. It kind of – there's enough exposition throughout it where this explains – 
everything that kind of happened before this in a way, you know, that you really need to know. Mm-hmm. And certainly this is uh, going to be the launching point for the new doctor who will be starting, I believe in the, I believe he's going to first appear in the Christmas episode. I think that's the one where it's going to change it over from uh, Matt Smith to Peter Capaldi. Obviously all this, this stuff, when you watch it, you'll be like, yeah, obviously this is going to be a big part, part of the running plot of what's, going to happen from here and you know like i said starting with this where you can watch that hey here's the whole history of the doctor here's everything vital you need to know great way to go this is actually one of the the great things they put out lately on blu-ray uh for doctor who and the only sad thing is really that this should they should have waited to put out the box set to have this in it because sure. this would have been the the capstone to yeah, it go seems with like it. an oversight that they wouldn't have thought of that yeah i have no idea why they they jumped the gun on that this would totally would have been the capstone for that set wow All right. Well, that was the day of the doctor. And from there, we're going to move on to Despicable Me 2. Yes. The Despicable Me Minions and things. Minions who dress up like other things. And then they go. Hey, but in this one, hey, hey, in this one, they're different colors. Hey, I will say this. I really like the purple minions and I want to own a giant stuffed one so I can hug it and sleep with it and tell it my deepest secrets. I think you'll have to go to some sort of like parking lot carnival to get your hands on one of those and win the ring toss. I can't. I can't. The one with the squirt gun where you have to shoot in the little yeah. mouth of the thing. I can do that every time. But ring toss, that's a, that's a jip. I'm telling uh, you. You're, never gonna... you're talking to a man that has won that twice. You won so the ring toss? Twice. I thought you said rim job. Okay, that's where I got The first time I won it, I actually threw it up and hit one. Like what I did is I like kind of lofted it and it hit one of the stuffed animals above the bottles and then kind of slid down the front of it and it bam was so like you won, you won by incompetence and luck is what you're saying well yeah <laughs> what do you think there's skill involved no no uh, uh but despicable me 2 is the uh, you know the the sequel and far going not even close to being the last one out of the series they have to the 2010 animated film despicable me big shocker did you not realize that that was the original oh i get it. i thought they were just saying despicable me as well no but- this is actually a sequel to Shrek. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> better than the Shrek sequels. <laughs> I like Shrek 2. Well, Shrek 2 is about the same that, as Shrek That's one. the only one they made, right? Just, just yes, Shrek 2? that's it. Okay, good. <laughs> um, this was made by Illumination Entertainment, which I didn't even know the name of before now, but it's one of Universal's attempts to have their own animated, basically, department. They're putting stuff out here. And I got to tell you, as, as sequels go to animated films... This isn't too terrible. I actually, in a lot of ways, kind of like this better than the first one, which I found to be a little bit too kiddy, a little bit too broad. Um, Like, I get it. They're cute. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. But with an entirely predictable plot. This one, for me, brings in some more interesting story points. You've already got it where, like, in the first one, it's like a no-brainer that Gru, voiced by Steve Carell, who's a supervillain, is eventually going to become a nice guy. And you're just kind of waiting for it to play out. And, in fact, very similar to another film that had come out, uh, like, a year before that that I'm blanking on the name uh, of. Right Mind. Megamind. Megamind. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one actually, you're like, okay, we officially like Gru. He's now a good guy. He's got his his uh, three g- little girls that he's adopted and takes care of, and it's it's ador- It's quite frankly kind of adorable. But he ends up getting involved in uh, being reluctantly working with the good guys, the anti-villain league, to uh, find out who took this mutagen that makes indestructible and terrible monsters out of whatever you put it on, basically. Uh, he finds out that his own assistant and friend, Dr. Nefario, has left for new employment. And so now he's forced to partner with undercover AVL agent Lucy Wilde, 
who is voiced by Kristen Wiig. So this is another movie where Kristen Wiig and Steve Carell are romantically linked. Except this is actually, like, their involvement is much more fun here than yeah. it is in, in Anchorman, Anchorman 2. 2. Yeah. Um, and honestly, a lot of the, this has a lot more heart than the original one does. It, it's the connection between the two of them. You're really rooting for it, it to take off. And the little girls, they want a mom. And so they really want this to happen, even though he, we watch him go on dates and they're obvious failures because still he's a supervillain and has no social skills. Right. Ex-supervillain. And there's a, some interesting other characters along the way. There's good action sequences. I really like Benjamin Bratt plays El Macho. Uh, Miranda Cosgrove returns as the oldest of the three girls, obviously the most talkative of this group. Russell Brand returns as Dr. Nefario. Ken Jong has a role in here. Steve Coogan. Oh, and if you can, if you can broaden your mind for just a second, he plays an Asian. <laughs> He plays like a stereotypical Asian yes, because that does. is all he knows how to do. He's the only Asian guy who will come in and play offensive Asian, Asian stereotypes. Yeah, exactly. Paycheck at this point. He's the only one who's like, yeah, that doesn't offend me at all. <laughs> I don't care. Is it paid? Did you have a dollar? Okay, there you go. I don't know. I had fun with this. I, I like I said, this made me like the series more than the first one did. Uh, I love one of the funniest things in here is watching the minions, who of course is the biggest attraction for the series. Of Everybody loved the minions. Yellow candy corn looking assistants that just kind of talk in nonsense, where they they get affected by this mutagen and turn into these sort of purple, fluffy, scary looking things that are actually even more adorable. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, even as scary monsters, they're they're adorable. supposed to be villainous, but maybe it's just who I am. I'm like. Now they're cute. <laughs> <laughs> now that they're evil, they're adorable. I don't know, man. I, I thought this was okay. But, I mean, if you want to talk about the first one being predictable, I mean, once once they have the whole matter of him taking care of the little girls settled, it's like the only logical place they could possibly go would be to add uh, a mom to the equation or a, a love interest for Gru. And I thought, okay, well, that's fine. But it kind of took some of the air out of the movie for me. I was just like... I was kind of expecting it to go this way, and it, you know, it didn't really do too much that was new. Now the the stuff with the minions was fun. I'll give you that. Uh, and there was there was a lot of enjoyment to be had from the newer characters, uh, El Ma El Macho, and I even really liked Christian Sh Kristen Schaal's short appearance in this movie as one of the women he takes on a blind date. I oh thought yeah, she was great. That's a very funny scene. Uh, and there were some kind of like dazzling animation shots, but overall, I was just kind of like, eh. I guess, I mean, but like you said, I think you summed it up perfectly when you said, as animated sequels go, it's not bad. Yeah. Because we've set the bar so low for those over the last, I mean, if it's, if it ain't a Toy Story sequel, we're setting the bar pretty yeah. low. Toy Story sequel is the one exception to the rule where they just keep getting better with every film. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't even apply to all Pixar sequels, you no, know what I mean? No, <laughs> like, it decidedly doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it really is just Toy Story. But yeah, I mean, on this, you got, uh, you got some deleted, not deleted, excuse me, you got some extra features. Uh, one of which being a few mini movies starring Gru and uh, the Minions, and I mean you have there's a lot of stuff involving the Minions as I as I'm sure you can imagine. That's their marketing angle. It They're really like, is. we can sell Minions merchandise, we can sell Minions whatever lunch boxes. Yeah, they know that's the thing that's getting little kids go, "Mommy, I want that." Yeah. So, so. you spend several features with the Ewoks. I'm sorry, the the Minions. <laughs> And uh, there's an audio commentary. There's only, like, one deleted scene, which I thought was odd. But with animation, I guess if you don't like the scene, you just don't 
animate it, so yeah. it doesn't exist anywhere. Usually, when you see animated things in their deleted scenes, there'll be a uh, like a, a work like a, just that you're watching the sketches, and they have the yeah. actors come the storyboards. in storyboards. Yeah, the storyboards, and they have mm-hmm. the actors come in and voice it just to you know be helpful. Sometimes in the old Disney ones, they'll do that, with, but they'll try and like animate the storyboards a little bit, yeah, to move them around, mm-hmm. and that's cool to have that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, they like they don't finish scenes very often, and then cut them out completely out yeah. of animated films. True story. Yeah. Although sometimes Pixar has been known to do fake cut scenes, of course. They're so awesome. I love Pixar so much. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Gotta love it. Anyway. Well, that was Despicable Me 2. And now we're going to move on to Big, the 25th Anniversary Edition. Talk about a movie that I love. Man. Okay. Big, the 25th Anniversary Edition. Oh, oh, you meant... Okay, right. I gotcha. Yes. (laughs) This was a 1988 Tom Hanks film directed by Penny Marshall and a film that I remember when it first came out seeing the trailer going, I am not going to go see that. I was 18. I had no interest in seeing a movie about like a kid that through magic becomes a grown man and gets to live a fantasy life. I'm like, yeah, this is a movie for little kids and I don't really want to see it. Lo and behold, everybody loved this movie. The critics were coming out raving about it. Hell, Tom Hanks got an, uh, I, bl- I believe it was Tom Hanks who got a best uh, uh, actor nomination for this. Oh, really? I believe it was him who got it. Uh, yeah, it was, it's, yeah, you're right. He was, yeah, it's not 42 on American film institutes, a hundred years, a hundred laughs list. Uh, AFI named it as the 10th best film in the fantasy genre. Empire magazine named it as one of the 500 greatest movies of all time, but I never see people talking about this movie, which is a shame. They, well, when they're I, not with the same reverence that they talk about things like Caddyshack or Ghostbusters yeah. or some of these other comedies from the 80s. And they should, because this is a superior comedy. It really is. It's so funny. It's so incredibly charming. You can watch it with anybody. I mean, I was 18 years old, finally reluctantly went in to see it and thought it was wonderful. Well, and it's a universal thing for all kids that you, you know, you reach that point where you're just grown up to recognize that you're not a grown up yet. And you start to really long for having the freedom that grown ups have. And then, of course, once you get to be a grown up, you realize that a lot of those freedoms come with a lot of shitty things that you have to deal with as well. So this is about a kid who gets his wish and becomes a grown up overnight but then dealing with the logistical problems of still having a childlike mind and surviving in the adult world. Yeah, and you 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 know, it's not like all the other movies that were coming out at the same t- time, like 18 again and like Father Like Son and vice versa and the endless parade. All of the films. body swap comedies. All the body swap comedies. The only other one that's good that's really good are the two Freaky Fridays, as near as I can tell, that I'm aware of. I can't think of another one that's really worth watching. Yeah, I mean, maybe some that are worth watching, but I wouldn't call any of them really that great. <laughs> well, I liked both the Freaky Fridays. I thought they were both pretty good. Even the remake, like I said, I, I had a really good time with. But neither – nothing stands up next to Big, no. which is actually just flat out a great movie. And especially when you got Tom Hanks, who's always – we've always had that child at heart thing about Tom, who's, mm-hmm. you know, started as a stand-up comedian. He really re- captures – this grown man and the awkwardness of being in a grown man's body and feeling grown man's sensations and dealing with a grown man's world. I mean, he even like finds himself in a situation here just through really sheer luck uh, when he goes to FAO Schwartz, which is a giant toy store, store uh, impresses the owner and ends up getting a job working for them and becomes kind of like a hero of the company because he's so great with all these ideas. Cause yeah, he's a kid. He can tell him exactly wh- what it is that he wants more awkwardly is the fact that one of the other people who works there played by a very sexy and young Elizabeth Perkins is kind of falling for him and trying to seduce him. And he has no clue what is happening. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's one of the more awkward parts of the movie when you start thinking. Like, the whole movie's got this very charming, very sweet sort of uh, – overall, it's very whimsical. And then you start thinking about that scene where he has sex with Elizabeth Perkins and you're like, 
Wait, how old is he again, like, legally, technically, in his mind? Well, I don't think they actually had sex. No, they, they did. They almost had sex. No, 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 they very much did. Did they? Okay. Yeah, because there's even a scene the next day of him, like, coming in, like, all, like, oh, you're right. striding into work, like, woohoo! <laughs> you're right. Hey, you know what? That guy is going to have a story to tell. He's, yeah. Like, that may be the last time he ever has sex before he goes into the insane asylum after yeah. he's put back into it. I was going to say, Elizabeth Perkins is going to have a lot of therapy bills after that. Yeah. There's actually an Asian remake of this film that's getting a, little, a lot of buzz right now. It's a, sort of an underground type of thing. Where they do the same thing, except that it's way more sexual, and it's all about that aspect of the movie. And it probably translates literally as little boy gets big dick or something, something like that. Like that. Yeah. But it, just hearing about it, I was like, you know, I do not want to see that. Thank you very much. Like that, that, that is taking all of the magic out of big. Now, the quite thing, frankly, the thing about this and the reason to get this on Blu-ray is a, there already is a Blu-ray of the, this out uh, that was out. But they don't make it anymore. In fact, last time I checked, they didn't even have it on Amazon. Like, you couldn't even buy it anymore. It's just a shame. Why did it take so long? And, the you know, the thing is, this is exactly the contents of that it's one. It's that exact disc. Yeah. It, they've just changed the packaging. They've just changed the packaging, which is cute, though. It's yeah. like you open it up, and it plays the, the exact version that we hear in the film of Tom chopsticks. Hanks and Robert Loggia doing chopsticks on a, uh, on a one of those giant walk-on-a-pianos, which is like the moment you open, you're like, oh, I remember that scene. That was awesome. Yeah. No, <laughs> um, it's a lot of fun. And it's definitely, if you don't already own it or if you were putting off owning it and now the other one isn't available – this is definitely one to pick up, but if you already own Big on Blu-ray, I can't really recommend double dipping just for the packaging. No, no, of course not. But, but you know, but it makes for a great gift. It does, to be absolutely. Sure. And this, if, you know, if you only ever remember seeing this in the theaters or watching on TV, this version is a lot has a lot longer version. Like we're talking about how Fast and the Furious is like a minute longer extended cut. The theatrical cut, which is also included here, is hour 44 minutes. The extended cut here is two hours and 10 minutes. Yeah. So you're getting significantly more money for for your buck. Uh, Documentaries, 15 minutes of deleted scenes with intros by the director, Penny Marshall. So you can make Laverne and Shirley jokes. Uh, A look at uh, Steven Spielberg's sister, Annie Spielberg, who actually co-wrote this film with Gary Ross, talking about the writing of it. Look at the casting, the toys in the film, uh, the uh, 21-minute thing from the show Hollywood Backstory, looking at the film's genesis and the shoot on it. Uh, The the Carnival Party news wrap. Lots of, you know, more than enough stuff to make this a really worthwhile package. I really don't understand why they even let this lapse in the first place. But, hey, it's back out again in a prettier, cooler package, and why not? Why not, indeed. Uh, Well, from there, why don't we talk about a seasoning house? Is this like Mrs. Lowry's seasoning salt house, I told you, or? season the turkey. It's too dry. Oh, you did say that. <laughs> you did indeed. Actually, this is one of these ones that made uh, this list for today at the last minute because uh, we finished our recording our regular th- our theatrical reviews last night a little earlier than I thought we were, were, and I was a little less tired than I thought I was going to be, and I was like a little more drunk than I thought I was going to be, and I was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to watch I, – fuck it. I'm just going to watch one more movie out of this giant endless pile I have in front of me. So I saw, thought, you know what? There wasn't a lot of horror this week, so let's pick out one of the horror ones. This had some good reviews on it. It's a British horror film, which there's been some good stuff coming out from lately. Let's check out The Seasoning House. And wow, this is probably not a film to watch while you're in an emotionally vulnerable state at all, or even a little drunk like I was, because I was really freaked out by this excellent and truly frightening horror film. Uh, it follows Angel, who is this, I, I think it's not clear, it's, she looks like she's maybe 15 or 16 years old. Um, this young girl who's forced to work into a house that deals with supplying young prostitutes to military personnel, but by force. I mean, we see early on how she was brought in, where these military guys showed up in her 
her apartment building, killed all the adults and took all the teenage girls with them pretty what? much. So they're all in bondage and she's deaf and has formed a weird sort of connection because of that and because she has a, a large birthmark on her face. So she kind of becomes a, a the assistant to the guy who runs the brothel. Okay. And her job is to kind of go around, feed the girls who are tied to their beds when they're not, you know, pretty much all the time, uh, and give them heroin on a regular basis, like shoot them up with heroin. Already, wow, this is a fucked up movie. <laughs> um, when she forms a connection with one of the girls who is actually able to sign, to do sign language, which, you know, she hasn't been able to talk to anybody, like to express herself to anyone since she was taken away and watched her mother killed right in front of her. She sort of starts to form a connection with her, but when guys come in and start deciding they want to hit the new girl, she kind of loses it and it turns into – even though it sells it as a revenge story, it turn, it's really a sort of like, oh, it's on now survival story where she and her experience with this house that includes like crawling through all the air ducts because she's so tiny and going from room to room and gradually fig- taking out the soldiers in her own <laughs> weird way is – Actually, you would think it sounds like it'd be unrealistic, but it's mm-hmm. very realistic. It's very brutal and gritty. It's very gory, but not in a, hey, look at this cool gore. It's in a, whoa, shit, like just right in your face. When someone gets shot, they show them getting shot like in the face and their face, foreheads caving what? in. And it's just like everything is covered in dirt and grime and grossness. Like at one point, somebody like one of the soldiers sees some one of the girls get shot right in front of him and it freaks him out enough that he pukes all over her body. Jesus <laughs> it's, Christ. it's really heavy stuff. But wow, are you rooting for this girl? I mean, you were behind her 100% watching her to like, please survive. And it ends up with her kind of in a one-on-one really with the actor Sean, Sean Pertwee, who's in any given action movie that's made these days. In fact, I think he was in Fast and the Furious 6 for that. I was going to say the name sounds familiar. So maybe. Yeah. Uh, and it builds to a point that you're just like you're just gonna cheer, but yeah, it's one of those sort of action action thriller horror things that is more horror because of the just incredibly disturbing situation that she's in in the first place. That you have to, as somebody who knows anything about the way what some of the things that go on in the third world, shit like this is really happening out there. That makes it all the more horrifying. And it's also filmed incredibly well. The cinematography to this thing is actually gorgeous. I was surprised that like some of the more commercial press really did not like it. The mainstream press hated it, but the horror press all loved it. And I think that's really because what you're going into it to expect. It's an ugly film. It's a film that's going to make you feel sick. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to. (laughs) Horror guys are like, cool. Mainstream guys are like, why would I want to experience that? Well, that's why The Conjuring wasn't on most people's top 10 lists of the year and should have been. I will say in, in terms of that, in terms of, you know, being a uh, like a mainstream and a genre guy, I put your next in my top 10. I don't care. I fucking love that movie. It's in it, my top 10 of the I, year. I don't blame you for that. I wasn't as big a fan of that, but but The Conjuring was in mine. Hell, so go. was This is the End. I'm like, I'm sorry. That's one of the most positive reactions I had to a film that was incredibly well done in what it did. And I, I get a little tired of critics who dismiss genre stuff and they include comedies as genre a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, that's idiotic. That's so well done. Well, but you know, that's, that's, an, that's an Oscar mentality thing. That's, I mean, the Oscars kind of have that, that feeling. Like there's so many of the people we're talking about who dismiss genre 
are the people who make up the Academy voting board. No, you're right. But I see, you know, average critics we know as well. I mean, if that's really – if that's – if you honestly feel – can say that the, every film on your top ten list you thought was a better made, a film you enjoyed more than those other genre things, then I don't have a problem with no, that. No, of course not. Okay, but if you don't and you're just doing – put them on there because you think that's the type of films that should be on there – then maybe you should double think. <laughs> Just saying. Just I know for saying. me and for my tastes, there were, and there is every year, some stuff that's not on everybody's list. Hell, like the year the Avengers came out, it was like number one or two on my best of the year list. And people were like, what? You can't do that. I'm like, fuck you. I can't do that. <laughs> I can't think of another film I thought was as perfect that was made this year as that. And no other film I will probably go back to as, as many times as I will that one. So... Fuck off. Fuck off. <laughs> Says digital noise. <laughs> Fuck off. But yeah, this is a, it's not a fun movie, but it's an excellent film and very well made. It's got a 15 minute making of as well. And I do, I do really recommend it for horror fans, but for people who have it all light, who, who like want their horror, the kind you can laugh at, you know, this is not one of those movies. <laughs> Not so much. You're not going to have a rip-roaring time watching the seasoning house. No, it moves fast, but it's not a sort of like, yeah. <laughs> no. It's not cheering in your seats like woohoo. There's some really disturbing stuff in this movie. So be bring careful. over your friends, drink some beer, and watch the season in hell. Look, look at that hooker dying. <laughs> well, if we wanted to see that, we wouldn't I, watch a movie. I'm sure. I'm sure Bo would enjoy this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Anywho, wow, we went to a dark place there. So let's quickly pull out of that and talk about Mary Poppins, the 50th anniversary edition. Um. Go ahead and do Dick Van Dyke in this movie. I want to hear you do it. Nowhere is there a more happier crew than them what reviews DVDs and the blues. That was good. I don't I'm, know. I, I can't really do a Dick Van Dyke impression. I'm now satisfied, though, so thank you. <laughs> well, that's super cool. I, I did spend, like, ten years of my life, like, singing Chim Chim Marie, like, all the time. Of course. this was, like, Mary Poppins was one of the greatest things Disney ever put out. And remains one of the greatest things that Disney has ever put out. And I don't know how you can't love this movie. Like I don't even I don't even know why I should have to sell it to you. Like if you've seen it, you love it. And if you've seen it and you don't love it, seek counseling. I Something mean, that's is broken inside of really you. Really all I can say and it's it's out of concern for your well-being that I say that. Yeah, we're not trying to say you're a bad person or anything like that. We're saying something didn't finish forming inside of you. <laughs> Mary Poppins, seriously, just I mean, in a I love this movie even more after seeing Saving Mr. Banks and getting at least part of the story of the the difficulties of getting this movie made and just knowing that, like that Walt Disney would not give up and was so persistent and got this film made and it, it was turned into something just so amazing and wonderful and this I, again like I'm not even sure I have to tell you what happens in this movie because I feel like even if you haven't seen even if you're one of the 12 people who haven't seen Mary Poppins you know what happens in the movie because it's all sort of part of pop culture canon. Yeah, I mean, Mary Poppins, she's a nanny who has magic powers, comes down from the sky one day with a family that's having problems, mainly because the dad, George Banks, played by David Tomlinson, is so busy uh, that he doesn't have enough time to really pay attention to his kids, who are sweet kids, but they're kind of getting a little bit out of control. Uh the nannies are ex – they can't keep a nanny because the kids are so out of control. But, you know, here comes this bitch with magic powers and it's like <laughs> – That was actually going to be the original title is here's this bitch with magic powers. <laughs> and then they realized that it was a Disney film. Well, she went on once she got older to be a teacher at Hogwarts. So it's OK. But Right? Yeah. <laughs> that, oh, see, my God. In my mind, yeah, that's exactly – It's McGonagall. Yeah, it's McGonagall. This is McGonagall totally... Poppins. <laughs> McGonagall! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this ends up being a lot of fun as these kids 
kids are sort of taught not only sort of about just sort of the basic rules of politeness and just kindness to other people, but just, you know, how to use your imagination, yada, yada, using really great and classic Disney animation and bringing in D Dick Van Dyke as sort of a friend who is a locally, local chimney sweep. I don't, kind of an odd person to buddy up with but either way yeah. he's got that mary poppins type of enthusiasm for life and they they form a great team and along the way it ultimately as the movie saving mr banks pulls out uh, you know the why the title it's really about she didn't come for the children she came for mr banks right like she came to save him from the road he was going down and it, it just works on so many different levels, not the least of which are the absolutely terrific songs in this movie. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I tear up every time I hear Go Fly a Kite. I'm sorry. I it's a beautiful song, and it's just it's about just the purity of, of living in the moment and just having having that sort of childlike zeal and just that lust for life. And I, I yeah, I'm with you. I love that. And not only that, but I I weep every time I watch the scene where Mr. Banks walks home from the bank, and there's just like oh my god it's just so heart heartbreaking to watch this man who is so proud and so um sort of sure of himself reduced to that and and completely broken down and still with dignity like not not making a, a sound really just kind of trotting home in in the bleak streets of london it's just like oh my god it gets me every time yeah, there's so much good stuff in here. If you've never watched it, you really owe it to yourself to, you know, child or adult to go back and give this a try. And if you do only remember this from being a kid, give it a try as an adult. And you'll find that it's one of those movies that really holds up. Uh, now, this is, of course, the first Blu-ray release of this. They did release it on DVD not that long ago. But what you have here is a, of course, there's a tie-in to Saving Mr. Banks because there's a 14-minute uh, behind-the-scenes look at that movie. Yeah, it's actually Jason Schwartzman uh, who plays Richard Church who's one of the writers in Saving Mr. Banks, um, he, he basically kind of sits down and talks about Mary Poppins and then just kind of a natural bridge over to the movie. And I think, But I think the big thing that will uh, entice a lot of people is this, this feature called Marioki, which is uh, it's like a sing-along feature for Spoonful of Sugar, Supercalifragilist, Step in Time, and Chim Chim Cherie. I think a lot of people are going to dig that. And those are the two add-ons that are here for the new one. As well, it brings in all the – pretty much every previous DVD thing that's ever been on other ver versions of this And there, well. there was a lot. You know, that to be fair, the 40th edition DVD had a lot, and yeah. they have brought that over here. Yeah, very true. There's a shit ton of stuff, and it looks great. The transfer on this is beautiful. Like, this movie in and of itself is just so gorgeously shot, so vibrant, so alive – and they've really done a great job of cleaning it up without making it false, without taking away its personality. Like, there are still some scenes with, with heavy grain, but it only kind of serves – it doesn't It doesn't distract. It only kind of serves to remind you uh, how this movie has aged and aged so gracefully. Like, like Chris was saying, if you go back and watch it now, if you loved it as a kid when you watch it now, you're going to discover entirely different facets of the movie to love. And that's that's kind of echoed by the transfer. It's like you still have those little bits of grain, but then they've cleaned up. Like, like there's an early scene where Mr. Banks is walking home and he looks up at his neighbor, who of course has a ship for a house, and just every like every detail of his suit is is visible, despite the fact that it's a very deep, rich black. And I was like, okay, that 
that's incredible. Like you've done an incredible job with this. You know, uh, this director, Robert Stevenson, pretty much had a career out of making stuff for uh, Disney. You know, the absent-minded professor, the shaggy dog, uh, Darby O'Gill and the little Darby people. O'Gill and the little people. Old Yeller, the movie that makes everyone cry like it. Or, I don't care who you are. You're going to be a mess at the I, end. I've never seen it and I never will. Uh, you know. He went on to do after this Bedknobs and Broomsticks. The which Love I, Bug. Which, which I've always considered Bedknobs and Broomsticks to be in kind of the same universe as, as Mary Poppins. Like it's, it's similar. It's, yeah. it's, it's just instead of Mary Poppins going to the children, the children come to Mary Poppins. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, terrific buy. This is like if you're talking about something to get for kids for Christmas, you're looking for something to get like nieces, nephews, whatever. This is the one. And just because of this movie, because of the transfer and all this special, this is my pick of the week. I love Mary Poppins, and I think they did such a stellar job with this particular release that I can't help but tell you, this is definitely my pick of the week. The Mary Poppins 50th Anniversary Edition on Blu-ray. It's not mine. Uh-oh. We're about to find out what Chris's is in just a moment. I may have already said mine, and I just don't know, so. Oh, yeah. You know what? Actually, it was Doctor Who Day of the Doctor. I was going to say, it was probably the Doctor Who yeah. nonsense, but... Um, <laughs> nonsense? What? Nothing. You... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on from there, we're going to talk about Sightseers, which is actually another film that I didn't quite make it into my top 10, but was like so close. It was like that number 11, just like eking to get on the list. I, this was played the year at South by, uh, uh, not South by, Fantastic, Fantastic Fest that mm-hmm. I wasn't, the one year I wasn't there. And I was so disappointed about this one because it's by Ben Wheatley, who is quickly Amazing. turning into one of the most interesting directors who are working right now. Uh, Down Terrorist, which he made in 2009, Kill List, which you've heard us review in the past on 2011, and, and this in 2012, as well as one of the, like, really short ABCs of death films. And uh, I did not get to see a field in England. I don't, I still don't think I've seen that one. I've actually heard it's the one that he's trying something so different that it doesn't quite work. Yeah, that'll happen. But either way, this is still, I I like this just as much as his previous two films. And it's his first real black comedy. Oh, it's super black comedy. (laughs) Um, You you might know if you watch a lot of, uh, British stuff, you might recommend the, or not recommend, recognize. recognize the two leads. Alice Lowe, who's known for being in the Garth Marenghi series. She was in Hot Fuzz as Tina. Um, she's been a lot of British comedy. You'll be like, oh, she looks really familiar, as well as Steve Oram, who's the other main star in here, who's worked in all kinds of different features, worked with Steve Coogan on Alan Partridge type stuff. Uh, it, he was in It's All Gone, Pete Tong, stuff like that. This is going to bring a lot more people, hopefully, to like. They're both going to realize who Ben Wheatley is, this director, and the stars who wrote the film together. The idea being here is that uh, Tina, uh, played by Alice Lowe, is kind of she's one. She lives with her mom, and her mom is a domineering, almost pretty much crazy woman. Just one of those. I'm alone. I don't have any friends except for my dog, and you killed my dog. Yeah, which was an accident. Which was what a funny accident. Oh my (laughs) god! When you finally see it, you're like, oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she feels so horrible and she's in that sort of guilted relationship with the mom. Just uses guilt to control her. But when she meets a guy, Chris, played by Steve Oram, she's like, you know, this is a whirlwind romance. I need anything to get away from here for a while. And he talks her into doing a a trip around England looking at, you know, various – it's just silly stuff the tourists go to, like pencil factories and things like that. Uh, cat, You know – caving tours that sort of World's thing largest ball of yarn yeah and they decide you know that he's got a, a rv and they hook it up to the car and they go or as on, they call it in england a caravan a caravan only thing is as as we find out shortly into this 
Chris has a bit of a problem, a bad habit, if you will. Yeah, a bad habit that tends to leave people uh, put off and murdered and at the same murdered. time. Yes. Unlike a lot of films you might expect, th there's two ways this film could go. Natural Born Killers. Natural Born Killers or any other film where she's running screaming from him as well. Yeah. Trying to survive. Yeah. It doesn't really go either no, of those places. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it finds a new way that kind of... I, don't, I mean, it's more similar to Natural Born Killers, maybe, but it's but it's so completely its own thing. Mm -hmm. Just a weird direction and constantly has turns with surprises, big laughs. I mean, this is really clever uh, British horror comedy. And it's no surprise that Edgar Wright was the guy who ended up paying for this whole thing to get made. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's black comedy. It has sort of a, a social angle to it. It's, it's sort of that, that like a lesser version of Boondock Saints where it's not about – ridding the world of criminals it's about ridding the world of people they deem as being rude or or deem yeah. as being like you know these people don't really deserve to be alive so we're just going to do the world a favor and take them out yeah. and then as they say at one point it's green to kill people yes it's, it's green environmentally to sensitive to it, kill people indeed. there's less emissions from them you're reducing their carbon footprint exactly. you're cutting off their fingers so they don't leave fingerprints <laughs> it's you know a lot of things going on here but yeah i what i find so fascinating about this movie is actually Alice Lowe's character and the sort of evolution of finding out that her boyfriend's a sociopath, observing her, her boyfriend being a sociopath, being turned on by the fact that her boyfriend's a sociopath. Well, she's so needy. Yeah. Like, she's been turned into this person who's, like, used to getting nothing but criticism a whole life. And here's this guy who actually professes to love her, who mm -hmm. pays attention to her all the time, that the fact that he's a serial killer is really a minor problem, all things considered, with all the bonuses that she sees. And she's so anxious to please <laughs> yeah. that she's like, well, when in Rome. It's it's uncomfortable and it's brutal. It's funny at the same time. And it's bizarrely uplifting. Like, yeah. there's this weird part of you that's like, I'm glad they found each other. No, I'm not. Wait a minute. These are horrible people. Yeah. It's, it's just something Ben Wheatley is able to do where he's able to kind of – manipulate you a little bit and just let you focus on the characters themselves and not so much their deeds and the ending. Oh my God. Oh. The ending of this movie is amazing. Yeah. Like the, the very ending. Pitch perfect. You're just Pitch like black. I, as perfect as this is, didn't see it coming. No. Yeah. And you won't. And it's, oh my God. It's, oh, I love this movie so much. I think Ben Wheatley's a fucking genius. And I can't recommend more. This is just on DVD, sadly, because most of the rest of the world has yet to realize the genius of Ben Wheatley. But you will, hopefully. I mean, really, if you can get, like, just have a day, get his first three films. Down Terrace, Kill List, and this. All very different movies. All equally brilliant. And you will be one happy camper and officially a fan of Wheatley. Great use of music, stunning photography, just yeah. it, all around an incredible film and one that deserves to be seen by more people. Agreed. All right. Well, that was Sightseers. And now we're going to see our way into talking about Man of Tai Chi. Well, okay. Now, I got to see this at uh, Fantastic Fest this year. And as a big martial arts movie fan, I mean, that's a big part of my background. What I love well, growing up watching them, following it into the 80s and 90s. And I forget evolution. that we have microphones in front of us because I was like, yeah, I know. Why are you telling me? Oh, you're right. <laughs> We're telling them. Yeah, of course. Uh, and even now kind of watching where it's kind of like spreading out now. Other countries are trying to do their own versions of it. Obviously, Indonesia and Thailand and Korea are all are doing their own takes on it. Better than Hong Kong has been doing lately. Which True is, story. But – this is Keanu Reeves, who's been a lifetime fan of martial arts and martial arts movies, who is 
you know, directing and paying for basically this film to get made and starring as the villain in it. Part of it is that he was friends with the stuntman named Tiger Chen, who he thought was incredible and really wanted to bring him into the spotlight. And Tiger Chen, sure enough, is playing Tiger Chen, <laughs> who is the sole student of an elderly Tai Chi master. Now, Tai Chi is usually not sold as anything you would do for self-defense type things. It's more of a relaxation exercise. More meditative. Yeah. But the thing is, it is about like manipulating energy or chi or what have you and when he starts to say like you know this is could be so much more than this he's like i see possibilities here i think if used properly this would be the most powerful martial art of all as masters of course like well then you're missing the point entirely um he ends up getting involved with a company run by keanu reeves that does underground fighting championships type things like no rules combat it's clear as it goes along that he's being groomed tiger who's a badass is being groomed for something bigger or something nastier but we don't really know what till of course it gets there even though it's not really hard to guess <laughs> you take a wild stab at the beginning you'll probably be right uh, and, you know, it deals with things like there's a there's an ineffective uh, police trying to figure out what's going on on the outside. Can't really do much. They're really kind of the most impotent police force I've ever seen in one of these things. Not great. Uh, I guess the real appeal here is Tiger Chen himself, who really is spectacular to watch. True I mean, story. he's got a style very different than you're used to seeing. Um, and Keanu Reeves, who must have seen Chris Klein pretending to be Keanu Reeves in uh, Street Fighter mm -hmm. and decided, I could do that much better. He is so unhinged in this movie. Like, there's literally a scene where, for what appears to be no reason at all, he just looks into the camera and goes, ah! It's, and it's so like, funny. What the fuck was that? It's like, you, do you know that that was campy funny? I mean, it's like, because most of this film, the, the problem with this film ultimately is that it has a tone of very being a very serious film. And then it shifts. And then it'll suddenly shift with so bizarre and like, like, like that, like something that belonged in the Street Fighter movie, not in this movie. Or there's a scene where Tiger Chin is walking out of a building and literally reaches up and pushes the camera aside. Yeah. And it's like, wait, you just broke the – why did you just break the fourth wall? In this in this type of film with everything else around it, it doesn't seem to make much sense to do no. that sort of thing. And it's constantly it's, – it's enough of it that it just kind of throws you off your game. And the movie's plot isn't interesting or different enough from anything else to where that feels intrinsic to that sort of jokiness. Yeah. No, the plot itself is fine to make for an entertaining martial arts film. And I actually did enjoy it for most of the movie. But you do keep hitting these points where it's like – Wait, that was really silly. Wait, that was really silly. And then that gets to the end where it's like, okay, there's a lot of really silly shit going on here all of a sudden. Yeah. And worst of all, they bring in, at, you know, the, you, when you, you're building towards a final, like, final, like, championship fight type thing. And the guy you bring in is the main guy from the raid. Equal UIS. And U then U if you've seen the trailer, maybe you're really excited to see that because he's amazing. There's no fight. Yeah. I'm just going to spoil it for you now. There's no fight. They bring him in. They tempt you. There's a little bit of slapping. <laughs> And yeah. there's no fight. It's and you're bullshit. like going, why did you think that was a good idea? Yeah, it's utter bullshit. Yeah. Um, now, there's a lot of good, really great fights in here. There's, like I said, some stuff that's funny, some stuff that's just awkwardly funny. Ultimately, it's worth a look. I think people who probably aren't as over-experienced as I am with these martial arts films, having seen hundreds and hundreds of them, aren't going to be as much like me going like – yeah, I've seen a lot of stuff like this. You've got to really impress me with the whole, like, building towards a fighting championship type martial arts film like this. Just imagine you being the one standing behind the, the one-way mirror with the crew and being like, impress me, movie! Exactly, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but Keanu Reeves does a, a remarkably competent job for his first time out as a film director. And, you know, even more so, knowing how to to film and get the right people to film a martial arts film, which is not easy. Getting to make the fights look good and look 
ugh, crunchingly painful. He manages to get most of that across pretty well. Right on. So, I, yeah, I mean, I like it, don't love it, but I think you're more in, people who are a little more inexperienced with these films might like it a lot more than I did. It's got a lot of potential and it's got a lot of things that do work about it. It's just right for me, it's right at the cusp of that point where the things that don't work uh outweigh the things that do. Yeah. So, anywho, that was Man of Tai Chi, and now we're going to talk about a block of uh, 20th Century Fox movies, sort of their classic films that they have just released on Blu-ray. And I'm going to let Chris, because there's some of them that you saw, yeah, we some of them that we both saw. Yeah, we kind of split it up a little bit. But I'm going to let you start with The Undefeated. Well, The Undefeated is a John Wayne film. And let me start by saying that, like, for the longest time growing up, I, I didn't like John Wayne because it was a point of pride. Because my, I liked Clint Eastwood. And my dad kept telling me, yeah, Clint Eastwood's all right, but you need to watch some John Wayne movies. He's the true Western hero. And, you know, you, you're always a little bit in competition with your own father at a certain age. And I was always like, John Wayne, fuck that guy. He can't even act. And he was a giant Republican conservative and like real name is Mary. Shut your mouth, Tommy. <laughs> I just didn't really watch John Wayne movies until I got older. And now that I am officially older, there's no denying that. No, no one has. No one has denied. <laughs> I, someone's denying it. No, no, I don't think so. I, th I think you are. There's one guy. Raise your hands if you're denying it. Yeah, that guy for a second, he raised his hand. No, I, I don't think so. Damn. I think he was scratching his nose. I, I, okay. Also, he's a cat <laughs> and his name is Monkey. I want that. Gucci food back monkey you didn't live up to your end of the deal <laughs> oh this is this is devolving quickly uh anyway <laughs> the undefeated is really it's it's considered to be one of the lesser john wayne films and that's a shame because well you know it's no legendary it's no legendary classic it this was, is when he was waning in quality uh, <laughs> he was getting slightly up there it was 1969 but it came out the same year as true grit so, which is undoubtedly one of his greatest westerns and one of the greatest westerns. The only movie ever. for which he ever won an Oscar. Yes. So it's no question that this, this, it's not hard to see why this kind of disappeared in people's uh, memories here. But it's a fun little movie that's got Rock Hudson as sort of the other guy that he works with here. The idea is like just after the Civil War, John Wayne was a Union colonel uh, and Rock, Rock Hudson was a colonel for the Confederates. And he's kind of like, even though at first he's trying to like – Okay, the war's over. All right, we got to deal with this. When carpetbaggers start showing up, he's like, you know what? Fuck this. The war's not over. And starts going out with all the rest of the rednecks dressed up in their Confederate army, <laughs> marching towards Mexico to make some sort of deal with the, the emperor of Mexico at that point. Uh, they encounter John Wayne, who, you know, he's not wearing his, the war's over. He's not wearing his outfit. He just wants to be, you know, he's John Wayne. He's a hero to all. He loves everybody. Everybody's favorite Wayne. And they kind of reluctantly become friends, reluctantly on Rock Hudson's part, because he's like, you know, all oh, you Yankee scum. But as as he they keep, as John Wayne has to keep coming in to help this guy, because <laughs> it was really a poorly planned idea to go out to Mexico with a whole bunch of families and stuff and no real protection. Uh, they start seeing they have more in common than they thought, uh, including various love interests, yada, yada, yada. Ends up in a certain degree of chaos because what's waiting for them in Mexico is not what they thought it was waiting for. And it's the worst thing about this film is really that it builds to a, a, a kind of a, a climax. You're like, hmm. okay, really? That's how this ends? But that being said, this has so many terrific John Wayne moments in this that just there was one moment I was laughing my ass off because it was such a perfect Wayne moment where uh, this guy basically starts to draw a gun on him and he just punches the guy out and the other guy's just standing there and John Wayne turns towards him and grabs him and he's like, wait, wait, I didn't say anything. He's like, well, you should have. And punches him. <laughs> 
It's like, that's awesome. It's like, I'm punching you just because you're a pussy. That uh, other guy is punching so I didn't get shot. <laughs> there are those who argue that John Wayne was a bit of a bully, but that makes him no less fun to watch on screen. <laughs> yeah, totally true. Like I said, this is definitely a lesser Wayne film, but it's got some absolutely amazing Wayne moments in it. And the co- connection between him and Rock Hudson is great in here. It works really well. No special features here at all except for some some trailers, but... I, I think it's worth your time if you're a Western fan. Well, speaking of Westerns, one that I got a chance to watch from this same collection was a movie uh, called Jesse James from 1939 that stars Tyrone Power as the famous outlaw. Now, Tyrone Power I've always loved because he's in my favorite version of Zorro, which is the Mark of Zorro. Oh, yeah. Uh, such a great movie. And, of course, Tyrone Power is a legendary sort of swashbuckling uh, action star from that age. Uh, I'm, a, I'm kind of fascinated by the story of Jesse James, and one of my, you know, favorite films of the last few years was, uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and I found this version to be very, I, I mean, I wasn't expecting it to be as, as bleak and, you know, as introspective. Let me just say real quick that I can't believe when we were playing our movie Portmanteau game that nobody said The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford Fairlane. Nobody did that. That would have been great. That would have been it. We Absolutely. were looking for one for that, and we couldn't find it. Oh, anyway, I'm sorry, it. go ahead. But yeah, like, so this version, I wasn't, knowing that it was made in 1939, I was in no way expecting it to have the same tone and the same sort of, uh, like I said, introspective, bleak outlook as the, the more contemporary film. But man, they really go out of their way to polish up Jesse James and make him look like an American hero. Which, <laughs> now obviously, we have a long tradition in this country of romanticizing outlaws. Oh, sure. And romanticizing people like Jesse James or Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, people that lived in impossible times and did whatever they had to to survive because we live in a capitalist country where we're taught from from birth that it's like, do whatever you have to to get ahead. Um, and I get that. But man, he is like... Like, the beginning of the movie is the evil railroad company forcing the James family off their land. And then throughout the whole movie, he's just like this... This polished hero. There's almost a halo around him. Like, I'm scenes. trying to figure out how this is Jesse James. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. No, they, they skip over a lot of, you know, unnecessary murder. And anyway, um, but I mean, the, the crux of the movie is Jesse and his brother, Frank. Frank, who in this movie is played by Henry Fonda, actually, a pretty oh, young wow. Henry Fonda. Okay. Um, it's, there are parts of it that I thought were really enjoyable, uh, despite the sort of glossing over certain elements of... Jesse James' life. I found it odd that this movie was in color in 1939. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm a little wrong in, in my historical reference here, but I didn't think color was something that was standardized until later, like maybe late 40s even. I don't know. Again, I'll have to do a little bit more research to know this for sure, but I could have sworn, looking at this movie, let me just put it to you this way. Looking at this movie, I would have sworn on a stack of Bibles that it was colored after the fact, like a Ted Turner job where they went back and colorized it, you know, for the Blu-ray. But, you know, I even looked it up on IMDb and it said, you know, just in its basic information that it, you know, was shot in color, Technicolor. Yeah, it says it's vintage Technicolor. So I don't know. I was, I was a little, I was a little blown away by that. Um, oh, I see. Okay. No surviving original Technicolor elements actually exist. So this is in fact replicated. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. Well, but originally it was made to be in Technicolor. I, I'm surprised to, to hear that it was actually filmed in Technicolor, but it does make sense that they had to go back and sort of replicate it because something is a little off about it. It does have that sort of fabricated color look where, you know, like you would see in when Ted Turner bought all those movies from the archive and colored them after the fact. Like if you ever see the Ted Turner version of King Kong, it's fucking atrocious. No, I won't. I would never Do not watch, watch that. that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I mean, it's it's an okay film. One of the things that kind of bothered me after the fact, it's I shouldn't have done re- as much research as I did because 
I found out that this movie is the reason why they have people from the Humane Society on set for yeah. movies now. Because the horse died. Several horses died because they were doing a stunt where a horse and a rider fall off a cliff. And it's an incredible stunt to watch. And I was like, oh, that was really cool. And I didn't, because I li I'm, you know, sort of a, um, a modern liberal, I was like, oh, yeah, they probably had people on set to make sure that. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, no, they didn't. And this is the movie. This movie is the reason they now do. So fair enough. But yeah, I mean, it's if you're if you're a big fan of classic westerns, you, you might find a few things to enjoy about it. I I really just think it's a pretty blase film altogether. It's just kind of like eh, what's funny. Okay. It was a smash hit. The fourth largest grossing film in 1939. Of course, it had to deal with Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz <laughs> as competitors. Yeah. I'm surprised uh, it came in like even four with those movies. You know? But it was also also did a sequel, The Return of Frank James, directed by, of all people, Fritz Lang. What? I know. That is crazy talk. I need to check that out. Yeah, I did not know that that was a thing. Wow. Yeah, apparently it's uh, not considered to be all that great. And I think so. this may have been the one that you have to you have to forgive us. We watched so many of these, and they had various levels, various numbers of special features. Some of them having none at all. Some of them having so few that you, they may as well have had none of none at all. Uh, this has a. A couple of those movie tone news things, which I actually do kind of enjoy. Yeah, me too. The things that would play before the movies, before, you know, they had... <laughs> I was going to say before they had commercials, but these were largely commercials as well, so... And here's Tyrone Power going down with his lovely lady down the street. That Tyrone, he's really a lady killer. They're going to paint the town red for sure, even though this is black and white. You know, just take our word for it, they're painting the town red. <laughs> so they have a couple of those, and then uh, the theatrical trailer, so... Decent release, I guess, but again, I think it's for, you know, diehard Western fans only and diehard classic Western fans only. What about Western fans of Die Hard? Western fans of Die Hard probably won't enjoy this as much. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, moving on, I think we both actually got a chance to see this one, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Well, I had to. I actually, when I was a kid, I used to watch the television show that was a spinoff of this all the time. Is that where I knew this name sounded familiar? Is that why? Yeah, yeah. There was it was one of those that was on repeats, and I thought it was really cool because I loved anything with ghost stuff. And even though there's nothing that's creepy, this is not a horror movie. Don't get me get me no. wrong at all. It's a romantic comedy. Um, it was a cute setup with uh the woman uh Jean Tierney, gorgeous Jean Tierney. Uh, what was it? We watched something else with her recently. Laura. She, oh, okay. uh, she played the the title character in the the fantastic movie Laura, but she plays versus Rex Harrison here as she's a woman who's like basically buys this house against everyone's advice because she just wants to get out on her own from where she was. Uh, yeah, she wants to live by herself. She wants to do her own thing, except for of course having servants, which you have to because you're a rich white woman. Yeah. Um. So not entirely on your own. Only to yeah. find after the house starts, stuff starts happening. She's like, okay, I didn't believe in ghosts. I do now, but I'm not scared. Fuck that ghost. Come out and talk with me, and we are going to hatch this out right now. And the ghost is Rex Harrison. He's he was a a, a sea captain, Daniel Gregg, who lived there four years beforehand and reportedly had killed himself. He is still irritated by this because he didn't. It was, it was just an accident. An accident. Yeah. But he, they form a sort of reluctant agreement to share the house together and eventually starts becoming more than that as they get closer and closer friends and eventually even as romantic, I guess, as you can get with a ghost – which leads to the, the second and third acts, really, ultimately, with like, wait, no, obviously that's not going to work, so what do we do now? The discomfort that's going to come about that point in any given romantic comedy, and eventually a very awkwardly – awkward way of – making it all work out like yeah. what are those like you could never do that story now because he will be like 
Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I like that at all. Um, but this was kind of a classic, really, when it came out. People loved the shit out of this movie. Uh, it's on a lot of uh, best of lists, and it got adapted into radio shows and, like I said, a TV sitcom. It's a fun little movie with great performances, as well as George Sanders, who appears in here in kind of a slimy guy type of role, as mm-hmm. he was known of doing. You might know him from playing Shere Khan's voice in The Jungle Book. <laughs> nice. Yeah, one of the things that I found interesting about this movie was that Rex Harrison, uh, what is the polite word? He's, he's, sort of, he's an asshole, uh, and even after death, he's, so he's sort of like a polter douche. <laughs> like, he shows up in the lighthouse and is just like... Ah, you're a silly woman, you know, I don't like you. And then she starts crying, he's like, stop crying, I hate it when women cry. He's just such a dick bag. He's, he's Jack Nicholson in, uh, uh, what's the one where he's a total dick bag and then slowly becomes a nice guy? Oh, as good as it gets. Yeah, he's Jack Nicholson yeah. in as good as it gets, kind of, except with a salty sea captain type angle to it. <laughs> uh, but through the, like, affection for this woman who he eventually starts to kind of admire, like saying, wow, she's really not like other women. She's, and he starts to fall, fall for her. And it, mm-hmm. it makes it charming. It makes it work that much better because he starts off as such aggressively a jerk. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, it's, it's an enjoyable movie for its time. Again, I think this is, it's, you know, when I look at movies like this, I mean, when we talk about them on the show, I always try to think, like, what, in addition to the appeal that I got out of it, like, what might be the appeal for somebody now? And I'm, I'm not seeing a hell of a lot of things in this that I think people would latch onto now, but I think it's one of those things that you can watch in respect of nothing else for performances. Sure. Uh, and, and to remember that there was a time when these sort of like supernatural romances were a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, they certainly are now. Yeah, fucking Twilight. <laughs> and be one of those, like, this is better than all of those. It is. It <laughs> is better than all of the Twilight movies for sure, without even trying. Or any of the Twilight ripoffs or yes. what have you. It's, it is cute. There's nothing wrong with this movie at all. It's just, it it doesn't quite have the staying power of a legend, but you can see why it was so popular when it came out. Well, there and you it's go. Still cute and funny. Definitely. Yeah. Well, one of the ones I got a chance to see. I guess I got all the Tyrone Power movies because uh, I also watched Black Swan, in which uh, no, he's not a ballerina. He plays a pirate. <laughs> uh, essentially, this takes place when Captain Morgan was acquitted by the King of England for all of the piracy that he had committed against Spain because they were at war with Spain. So he started a rum company. He started a rum company, and it was delicious, and everybody had a little bit of him in them. But what he does instead is he becomes the governor of Jamaica and immediately sets sets up his former pirate buddies uh, with these privatized jobs. Like, okay, now help us hunt down pirates. And there is... There's one one former associate of his who just doesn't doesn't truck to the whole idea of, of turning coat and, and going against pirates. He loves being a pirate, uh, played by Tyrone Power, and they call him the the Black Swan. And uh, I really didn't like this movie. Oh, really? Uh, I like the swashbuckling stuff with Tyrone Power. I, I mean, I, I'm always a big fan of like the old school sword fights with the rapiers and the. The, the bantering wit and the just the very back and forth. So do you very, feel like there wasn't enough of that here, basically? I feel like the problem with this movie is that it it doesn't really know who its hero is. Because Tyrone Power is supposed to be the good guy. And yet he's the one that refuses to abandon, you know, uh, unlawfulness as a lifestyle. And meanwhile, Captain Morgan, who is, you know, one of the most... Uh, infamous pirates of all time is like sort of all of a sudden the stuffy political guy that he's fighting against. And I guess maybe at some point in history that was true. I don't know for sure, but it just felt odd to be like, I'm sorry, Captain Morgan is the 
the king's man who you're fighting against as a pirate. That doesn't, I don't know, that doesn't really gel with me. And not only that, but, like, he kidnaps and rapes a girl, and then they fall in love. And it's just like, um, I'm not, I guess I'm not understanding what about this makes you heroic, exactly. Yeah, I thought only in Japan that was a first date. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yes, as you were saying, there's not quite enough of the adventure stuff. It's more of a... Almost more of a political type movie where, you know, Captain Morgan is dealing with the fact that he's sent out all these people to hunt pirates and then he's getting pressured by the the, the council of Jamaica. Like, you're not bringing us enough pirates. And, Mon. Yeah, Jamaica Mon. And it's just like, I don't, I was bored, I guess, oh, a lot. Well, I'm disappointed to hear that. I was looking forward to watching this one. And you may have a different, you know, it's got George Sanders it. is in this as well. Anthony Quinn is in this. Maureen O'Hara. Anthony Quinn, I think, has one line in the movie. Oh, he's okay. he's like a pirate's henchman who you see a lot, but I think he only speaks once. He just he fills at the end. He's like the the equivalent of the guy in Trading Places who goes yeah exactly. Except he goes arr arr. <laughs> uh, but you know what? I will say this: this movie gave me a great toast. If we're ever doing shots of Captain Morgan, and that because it's a toast, they actually make two Captain Morgan in the in the early part of the movie, which is to Captain Morgan, uh, hanging or walking, he's still a better man than the pack of us. And I'm like. Yes, that is how I will toast whenever we do shots of Captain Morgan. I like it. But beyond that, I, I, there's not a lot to recommend here. Fair enough. And I, don't, I think this is one of the ones that has absolutely no special features whatsoever. It, just, it has some commentaries. Oh, it does have a... Yeah. Oh, yeah, it has, like, like historian commentaries. I apologize. One of them doesn't have any. Yeah, I was undefeated. Undefeated had none. Yeah, had none. Okay, all right. Well, from there, why don't we talk about Desk Set, which is one I think we both saw as well. And I, in my opinion, is the best of this lot. Uh, well, of what I saw, I, I would probably agree with you. Um, it's a, you know, I mean, anything that you put Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hep- Hepburn together in, you're going to see sparks fly. You're going to see massive chemistry because not only were they the oddest couple imaginable comedy movie romantic team for years, they were in a ton of movies together and people loved them. They were secretly having an affair the entire time Uh-oh. in real life, which is part of the reason why the chemistry was so good. Now, this is later on in their series of match matchups. They're a lot older. Uh, this is directed by Walter Lang. Uh, and it's, it is still a really funny classic with the two of them. It just doesn't hold up against things like Adam's Rib, if right. you will. And, that well, and, and part of, of that is that the story construction here is really slight. And what carries the movie is just the two of them playing off of one another. Well, that you really like both of them a lot, even though they're on opposing sides of an issue. And you want them to figure out a way to get past their differences because they obviously have a chemistry right from the start. That both characters know they have a chemistry, but they both have enough reason to feel like they're standing in the way of each other's goals. They're both so smart and respectful of each other's intelligence. It's one of those – it's a comedy for really smart people and the way it's built. Mm -hmm. But I don't think ultimately there's enough going on here to make it – to sell it as being quite as good a movie as it wants to be. Still a lot of fun. It takes place at the Federal Broadcasting Network. uh, And Catherine Hepburn is in charge of its reference library, (laughs) which basically – I didn't even know this was a thing. Maybe it's not anymore. Well, you have to understand what this movie is really about is the creation of the internet. Pretty much. Uh, (laughs) it's she's the person who who researches and answers questions on any topic you can imagine like at one point somebody calls to ask the name of a what all santa's reindeer is so writers newspaper journalists also think they call them hey i need this fact check real quick 
apparently somebody does that for a living, but that's her deal. And even though she's been involved for years with a rising network executive played by Gig Young, he's obviously not that interested in moving past this. And she's starting to come to terms with this, but here we go. Here comes Spencer Tracy into the thing who is that they don't, none of the women working in this place who are all great, by the way, they don't want him there at all because they know he's bringing, he's an efficiency expert. And some, when you bring in an efficiency expert, that means heads are going to roll. Right. He, but he's so secretive about the specifics of what he's doing there. No one quite knows what to make of him. And he starts sort of pursuing Catherine Hepburn, who's obviously the boss of all this, despite not technically being the boss. Yeah. Uh, and there's this reluctant, you know, they can't help but like each other. They're both so smart. And he's like, you know, especially at this period of time when a woman was really as smart as she was and she's near genius level in this, when he's constantly complimenting her on how intelligent she is, that was a big thing Yeah, <laughs> back then. Definitely. Um, and it is charming to watch. Like I said, it's just kind of disappointing that it, it, it never gets – it never goes quite to that next level that you would have hoped it would. Yeah, and again, I think it's – like I was saying, I think it's like you would uh, kind of echo it as well. It's just that the story is just – there's not much to it. I mean it's literally about a computer that's coming in to replace the reference people. So it really is like the, the internet driving people out of jobs. But it, it – there's not much more to the story than that. So really what you're left watching is just Hepburn and Tracy, who are great. But I think if the story had been stronger, then the entire movie would have been great, not just two great performances. But I, you know what? Something that I found really interesting. The whole movie, you know who Catherine Hepburn kept reminding me of? Kayla Cromer. I can the, see that. The entire movie. Like when she smiled, I was like, I've seen Kayla smile exactly like that. Yeah. Um, the fu one funny little note here is there's a flunky character named Smithers that's generally thought of to be the influence, like the inspiration for the character Smithers from The Simpsons. The Simpsons. Yeah. Right on. But no, like I said, this is a really cute movie. You're going to have fun with it. You can watch it with your parents and everybody will enjoy it and get some laughs out of it. It's just never going to make it to your all-time classics list. But that being said, I do think uh, it's probably the best of the things we've seen in this from this lot of uh, Fox movies on Blu-ray. So. Yeah, and these were all ones that they originally put out on DVD with their sort of like – print on order collection and they had a like which of these do you want to see us upgrade to blu-ray type thing where they asked the fans the people who bought this stuff hey what are the best of this collection mm -hmm. which were stuff that were like for in their library that they knew weren't their biggest hits ever <laughs> you know they were like minor some minor classics some were popular but never really got to that next level and these were the ones that won apparently well there you have it so well, that's going to bring us to the last title of the show, which is going to be at least part of our giveaway. And that is Futurama Volume 8. Oh, sad day. Yeah, this is the last one, guys. This is it. This is the end of the show. Or as we know it. is it? Well, yeah, I was going to say, we've heard this before, but this is not a cancellation issue. This is more of a... And we're done, sort of thing. Well, that being said, apparently Matt Gronick has said repeatedly, I'm not done. This, oh. Uh, there is going to be more Futurama. He doesn't know how or where, but he's fucking Matt Gronick. He could pay for it himself That's and broadcast true. it somewhere if he wanted to. Uh, now, of course, if you don't know what Futurama is, what are you doing here? How do you not know what Futurama <laughs> is? Futurama was the attempt for the Simpsons gang, the behind the scenes at the Simpsons, to make an entirely new show. In this case, set in the future around a bunch of uh, people who have a delivery service and yeah. deliver stuff all over the galaxy. 
And I think the show evolved from a more simplistic level to being like, we know who our fans are and now we're trying to talk to them, which is lots and lots of references to classic films, math jokes. Hell, there's an episode in here that's a parody of Edwin Abbott's Flatland, which you would only even get if you like (laughs) took advanced math classes. Yeah, I actually had to, my wife had to explain to me what they were referencing because I had no idea. Yeah, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing this. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was awesome. But it is the end of these shows being put out by Comedy Central. Now, they were on Fox for a while. They canceled it. Comedy Central picked it up. They canceled it. Who knows what the hell is going to happen next? And I, and I will say this. When Comedy Central picked the show up, it got infinitely better. Not that I'm saying the first few seasons were bad necessarily. No. But, man, was there a jump up in quality. Like, the first episode out of the gate when they were back was just like, wow, you guys are, are already knocking my socks off. And they've just kept it up. And they've gotten more uh, topical with the things that – which is funny because it's set in the future. But the things that they're making fun of and the things that they're referencing are definitely – like one of the early episodes in the Comedy Central run was called – was about the iPhone, except that it was a phone that you actually inserted into your eyeball. <laughs> and, of course, they made a lot of Apple jokes. And, I mean, I mean they just they've, – they've gotten a little bit more comfortable, I think, being referential and, and, and being uh, a parody. And I think they've done very well with it. Yeah, I, I will say that I think this is the most mixed bag of any of the seasons that have come out on Comedy Central, but there's some really funny stuff there in here. Really there's stuff. an attempt to wrap up long-running storyline elements like Fry and Leela, you know, really basically finally getting to consummate their relationship. Yeah. And there's some nice standout stuff here, like a Saturday morning fun pick. I always love their concept episodes. Yeah. I always love the episode where they did uh – uh they did like three different types of or different types of animation with like they did an eight bit episode. They did it like an anime episode. And yeah, stuff this like is that. one like that, except where all the, the characters are basically appearing in, in parodies of classic Saturday morning cartoons. Like G.I. Joe and Scooby-Doo and Smurfs. And Smurfs. Yeah. yeah, and it's cute. It doesn't work completely. Though the G.I. Joe one was kind of eh. But uh, the other two are pretty damn funny. I don't know. That G.I. Joe episode where Nixon is, is like, editing the show as it's going, I thought was fucking hysterical, personally. But either way, it's still of high quality. It's Futurama. It's very funny. It comes with a series of uh, extra features, including a look at the writer's room, which are always funny with these sort of things. And there's Uh, a commentary on every episode, which you don't get in a lot of anime Yeah, with banter between the cast and crew, so uh, as, as well as about 16 minutes of deleted scenes. Which in television shows actually do exist because they'll do it and then they'll get cut for time as it turns out like, oh, at this time of year, there actually needs to be more commercial times going on. So you're going to have to lose 20 seconds here, 20 seconds there. Yeah. Yada, yada. True story. And that's going to be part of our ultimate TV giveaway. Kaboom. Is that a thing? That's what we're, I guess that's what we're doing this week for our giveaway. Hooray. Not only do you get a copy of Futurama Volume 8, you also get a copy of Family Guy Volume 12. And Teen Wolf Season 3 Part 1. Oh my god. Because they wouldn't give us those first two without the third one. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the giveaway bundle we have for you. And as you know... We've gotten a little tricky lately with how we're uh, expecting you to to uh, enter for these giveaways. Oh, Trixie Hobbits. Trixie Hobbits is. And this one should be a lot of fun. So you guys might be familiar with the not sure if meme. Um, it's basically you see a picture of Fry uh, with this sort of puzzled look on his face. And the thing at the top will see, say like not sure if and then other like down below it'll say or. So for example, there's one that's like not sure if math test was easy or I did everything wrong. So it's it's sort of like as, as contemplative as Fry can be. So you can find that image and you can make your own meme of this very, very easily. Yeah. So what we want you to do is we want you to tweet at us. Now you're going to need to follow us on Twitter at one of us net. 
but then I want you to tweet at us your picture of your meme that you've created uh, that is not sure if and then or, but it has to pertain to something about one of us. There you so, go. So not sure if girl, Chris' girlfriend is real or if dating monkey. Something like that. <laughs> She's dating monkey. <laughs> But aren't we all really in a way? A little bit. And then you're just going to hashtag that one of us net as well as hashtag TV giveaway. And this will all be at the bottom of the post, so you won't need to write all this down as I'm saying it. But essentially, make your own not sure if meme involving one of us stuff. Uh, tweet that at us, at one of us net with the hashtag one of us net and hashtag TV giveaway. We'll pick our favorite. That person will win this entire bundle. Aren't you lucky? Aren't you lucky? That's a hell of a TV bundle you got going there, Salisbury. It's at least two-thirds an amazing TV bundle. <laughs> Is that a TV bundle in your pants, or are you just happy to see me? You know, I've heard a lot of people say they actually really like that Teen Wolf show. I've never bought I, I've never to seen it. it. Yeah. I can't, I don't understand both versions of, all three, I guess, versions of Teen Wolf that have existed, if you count Teen Wolf 2, uh, were comedies. Yeah. And now they're doing a straight drama television show. I don't get it. But, I, you know, like I said, I've had multiple people tell me they're totally hooked on that show and love it. And it's gotten good ratings. So maybe it'll be one of those people who's like, what? I can get Teen Wolf season one? There you go. Yep. Now you have to watch Futurama so you can make fry jokes. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's going to do it for Digital Noise this week. And uh, I think we've had fun. I don't know, Chris. What do you think? I had fun. I had fun. I'm 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 ready. Let's just go ahead and and record for the next eight weeks. <sighs> okay, here we go. Welcome to Digital Noise. No, no. You know what? I'm just going to to go ahead and say that uh, until next time. Oh yeah. By the way, you can follow us individually on Twitter. I should say before we go. I'm at Guy Salisbury. I'm at Chris Cox Critic. And please do consider following uh, one of us net at one of us net as well as the show at DigiNoiseCast. And please use those Amazon links. We would really appreciate it. And uh, we're just here to make your holiday season a little more blue. 